think one of my favourite memories is just sitting after a surf in the morning with a nasi garang and a coconut at Batubalong Beach. I miss that. Oh shit, I went to Paris too, I forgot about that. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the fourth episode of Destination Happiness with me, Sophie. Today's episode is actually a special one because it's been a year now since I left the UK. I can't believe it's already been one year since I took a one-way plane ticket to the other side of the world. It just baffles my mind. I've done so much in the past year, but at the same time it feels like just yesterday I left the UK. It's crazy. So today I'm going to be reflecting on the past year travelling going round different countries, soaking up culture, and appreciating life, being free to do whatever I want. I'm gonna be looking back at the past year, looking at all the highlights, all my favorite parts, funny stories, memories, maybe also as well the not so great parts too. But yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. I guess it all began over a year ago, the thought of travelling had been lingering my lingering in my mind forever. Leading up closer to the time when I booked my trip, I just thought I have to go. What else am I gonna do? Travelling's what makes me happy, so why wouldn't I go? It had definitely been in my mind for a good few I don't know if it was a few years or maybe a year or a few months. I'd even been discussing it with my boyfriend at the time and it caused a lot of relationship problems, but I had to do what was right for me. I already covered why I left the UK, why I've been travelling in the first episode of my podcast, so I'm not going to go into that too much. But as you guys know, or may not know, I quit my job in January 2022, and just over a month later, I got a one-way plane ticket to Bali, the other side of the world, with two nights accommodation booked, my backpack and a world of opportunities. I had no idea where it would take me, but I was excited and ready to start a new journey and a new chapter of my life. Oh, wow, Bali. I was actually going to solo travel around South America. Um, and this was the first time solo traveling, apart from my little trip in Italy, which wasn't really too far away from home and it wasn't too long either. And I had a return date, it wasn't really traveling, it was just a holiday. But the reason why I went to Bali was because my friends convinced me not to go to South America because they were worried about my safety, especially being by myself, which I completely understand. And so I kind of took their advice on board and thought, okay, well, I've been to Bali before with a friend why not just start off in Bali again so I can get used to solo travelling in a place that I'm already familiar with just as a little stepping, stepping stone to solo travelling properly. Bali felt like a dream, it came and went so quickly. I did so much while I was there and I absolutely adored every moment of it. <laughs> oh my god. I have a I have a list planned out of all my highlights in Bali and as I'm reading them I just remember there's so many more memories in between that I've forgotten about. Oh gosh, okay I was going to talk about the first night in Bali but actually let's rewind 
and I can tell you a bit more about leaving the UK and getting to Bali. I think there was about five days in between leaving the UK and getting to Bali because obviously the flight is long. I flew from Bali to Dubai, Dubai to Jakarta. I had to quarantine in Jakarta actually for a few days because when I went to Bali it was actually before the borders opened so I couldn't get a regular tourist visa. I had to go on a business visa. I had to quarantine for three days. There weren't any other backpackers there. Almost everyone I met were either expats living in Bali or locals. I didn't see another backpacker there. I saw maybe a handful and that was it. I remember me and my friend Matt, we went to this cafe at one point and speaking to the manager there, when we were chatting to him, we said, oh yeah, just mentioned about being backpackers and no words of a lie, he stopped what he was doing, looked us dead in the eye and was like, you guys are backpackers? And we're like, yeah. And he was just like, I've not seen a backpacker in two years. And honestly, he was mesmerised. He was so stunned that the trickle of backpackers were slowly coming back into Bali. Because, um, yeah, when, when we got there, we had to quarantine. We couldn't get a regular visa. It was a lot of faff getting to Bali. Because in my mind, I wasn't really going there to travel. I was going there to live. But I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't have a plan, I just had two nights accommodation booked and that was it, I didn't know what I was doing, I just thought okay well I'll get there and see. But yeah man, the quarantine there, I got there after, I don't know, god knows how how many hours flying and I checked in, actually no, so the quarantine hotel, they picked me up from the airport, drove me to the hotel and I remember seeing all the bikes on the road again, I, which I hadn't seen in five years, smelling the hot air, hearing the language, seeing all the culture around, oh my god. And I just had this feeling of excitement knowing that I was about to enter this new chapter of my life. Um, so yeah got into quarantine, I was in quarantine for three days. I said to my dad before I went, I was like, you know, dad, like, I'm a bit worried about getting food poisoning in Bali because I had barley belly when I was there last time. And so I said to him, I'm gonna go vegetarian just to reduce the chance of getting food poisoning. And he was like, oh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> And then I was like, mm, actually, I think I can go pescatarian because maybe fish is all right. And the the only reason why I was going to do this was for the pure facts that I wanted to reduce my risk of getting food poisoning. So I got there with that intention. And when I checked into the quarantine hotel, they had a list of breakfast, lunch and dinner that I could choose. And on there, they had all this delicious food. It sounded so good, like, I don't know, teriyaki beef and stuff. And I thought, mm, well, if we're in a quarantine hotel and the hygiene's got to be up there, right? So I think I'll be okay not being pescatarian just yet. I think I can handle some beef. And so I was like, right, okay, I'm not being pescatarian yet. And that was that. Was that. And then... 
when I got to Bali, I realised how westernised it had got since I was last there. And I was like, oh, okay, like, I think I'll be okay without getting food poisoning if I can still eat meat. <laughs> that never happened. I don't think there was a day where I went pescatarian or veggie. Um, but hats off to you guys out there who are. It's really admirable. I didn't deem it necessary at the time, so I didn't want to. All the delicious food, man. Oh, food is the best part, I think, about travelling. When I finished my quarantine sentence, <laughs> as if I was locked up, well, I was locked up, um, the day I got out of quarantine was actually a national holiday in Bali called Nyepi, and they don't do anything on that day. I think they turn off all the lights, there's no... Like, there's nobody on the roads, nothing's open, I don't think they even have Wi-Fi. Like, everything gets completely shut down. It's a religious holiday, and there aren't any flights either, so despite me being out of quarantine, able to do whatever I wanted, I still wasn't able to fly to Bali, so I had to stay in Jakarta for an extra night. I remember I changed rooms, so I wasn't in quarantine part of the hotel anymore, I was in a different room where I was free. Five days after I left the UK was when I actually managed to get my flight over to Bali. The first night, oh gosh, that was probably one of the best nights, despite me not knowing anyone at the time. Um, but I later found out that these people had formed the foundation of my best friends in Bali. Um, I remember I got a taxi to the hostel I was staying at in Changu. And there was a group of people sat around the table. They were blasting music and they looked like they were having a great time. There must have been about 15 to 20 people. And I thought, these guys look fun. So I went in, I checked in, I dropped my bags off. And then I came downstairs and I just said hello to them all. And they're like, oh yeah, like nice to meet you. Trying to remember everyone's names was a nightmare, but I did my best and was getting along with them well, had some drinks. One of them kindly let me order some food on their app, Gojek, which is similar to Uber Eats, but the local version. You can just order food on there. You can order a bike if you wanna go somewhere. It's great, such a good app. Oh my God, I love Gojek. And yeah, we ended up going out that night. We went to the Velvet Room. We went to, I think we went to Green Door, where else did we go? I can't remember, but we had such a fun night. And I got on the back of one of the girls' bikes, Vita. I remember not wearing a helmet, which was silly. I remember holding my phone and recording us riding the bike, which was also silly because I didn't realise at the time that there's so much theft around and people will try and steal your phone out your hand. And then I also remember we went into Velvet Room and there were people smoking in the club and I was like, can you smoke in clubs in here? And they're like, oh yeah, there's not really anything that you can't do. Another highlight I have, um, it involves one of my good friends that I made in Bali, Matt. And we did a lot together, we got really close. I think it was mainly because we were the only two backpackers there. Everyone else was an expat or a local, and Matt and I were just there to have fun. Um, we did so much together. 
we went to the beach together, we go surfing together, we go for breakfast, lunch and dinner together, we go on spa days together, waterfalls, etc, etc. And among those memories, one of the other things we did was go to Nusa Penida. Oh my god, that island is just... It's magical. I don't really know what made Nusa Penida special. Um, I think it was the great company. It was so secluded as well. It was like paradise within paradise. We went diving together and oh my god, that was I think the first time I went free diving. It's very romantic, it's very quiet as well. It's not like Bali in the sense that there's lots of parties, there's lots of people, it's very quiet. I think when everyone thinks of Nusa Penida they think about the T-Rex island and going down there. Um, yes, we did do that. It probably took up an hour or two of our time. We spent a few days there. Um, but Nusa Penida is beautiful. Everything's so hilly as well. I remember being on the back of the bike and I was clinging onto Matt for dear life. Um, we loved riding rounds on the bike and just seeing where the road would take us. There's only one road as well around the island, so you can't really get lost. But diving there going on boat trips, oh my god, it was great, you need to go there, but make sure you go there with someone whose company you really enjoy. I think it was shortly after going to Nusa Penida that I realised I needed to learn how to ride a bike, I didn't want to always get on the back of Matt's bike because we'd be doing different things different days, I don't want to get Gojex everywhere, the freedom of having a bike is just second to none. That was a learning curve in itself and I'm glad that I've got that over and done with now because learning to ride a bike is terrifying, not gonna lie. I still have scars all over my legs from crushing the bike. Oh dear, I probably shouldn't go into too much detail about the crashes I've been in. And yes, you had that right, crashes, plural. I had four little crashes. One of them wasn't my fault because I was actually a passenger on the bike, I wasn't riding. Um, but the other three were my fault. Um, let's just say I still have scars a year later and they probably won't go. It did take me a lot of courage to get back on the bike, but I said to myself, the facts are, you've had a crash, Sophie. You can either A, get back on the bike and carry on learning and don't be scared, or B, you can stop riding entirely. You can be scared to get on the, get on the bike for the rest of your life and you'll never move past this. And I thought, okay, well, I think option A sounds best. So I got back on. Actually, one one of the stories about the bikes is um, I was out for dinner this one evening with my friend Rosie. We went for curry, and I parked round the corner from the restaurant where the laundrette was, because I was dropping my laundry off. And we went for dinner, that was nice, fine and dandy. I'm like, do you know what? Do you fancy a donut? And there was a new donut shop opened around the corner. So we're like, okay. So Rosie walked round there and I was like, okay, I'll see you in a second. I'll just get my bike and I'll drive round. 
And next thing you know, there's a crash bang wallop. I've drove into the neighbour's fence trying to get out the laundrette because for some reason the curbs in Bali are so steep. It's like trying to get up a hill, but it's tiny and oh my God, trying to get down it again, especially if you're at the wrong angle. Um, yeah, that wasn't fun. And I crashed into a gate. The neighbour's dog was barking. The lady at the laundrette came out and was like, ah, what's, what have you done? Blah, blah, blah. I can't remember exactly what she said or I think she might have just been laughing at me. Do you know what? I can't remember. I probably tried to block the memory out. I drove around the corner. I parked up at the donut shop. I was shaking as well, actually. And Rosie was like, I heard a crash. Was that you? I was like, yes, let's just go in. I want a donut. <laughs> And I still remember just the anxiety. Every time I got on that bike was just, oh my God, am I going to crash again this time? It took a lot for me to get back on that bike every time. But I thought, you know what, you just have to keep going. Yeah, I think a big part of, maybe not the culture to say, but a big part of the community in Bali is the expats living there and the work. When I first got there, I had no intention of this, but it kind of felt like I was in real life LinkedIn with all the other digital marketers, with all the other business owners, with everyone else doing their own thing. Um, I did actually write a blog about the six types of people who live in Changu, so go and check that out on my website, sophietangtravel.com. It was kind of tricky trying to keep a work-life balance because there was always so many fun things to do. Everyone was like, oh, are you coming out tonight for drinks? On Wednesdays was girls' night. You always want to go for a surf in the morning, but then you also want to go to the gym, but then you also have these projects you want to be working on, and then you want to go out for drinks, and then you want to go out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and make sure you're catching up with your friends and catching up with your family back home and keeping fit, etc. all while having fun. Um, yeah, the work-life balance was pretty tough, not gonna lie. Um, but one of my favourite things about Bali, and I haven't really seen this anywhere else, but everywhere is a, oh, what's it called? Work Together Cafe. Collaboration Cafe? Oh my god, what's the word I'm looking for? co-working space okay that's the one yeah i'd never really seen that before it's not really something i'd heard of bali was full of co-working spaces co-working cafes my favorite one is a zin cafe and whenever i wanted a productive day if i wanted to get my head down and crack on with some work or writing blogs etc i would go to zin cafe and just keep my head down for you know six hours and just work 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 and then order a poke bowl and then do some more work i think because there's so many expats in bali they've seen this gap in the market and they're like right okay these people don't have offices because they're working remotely where are they going to work okay they're going to go to a cafe how can we monetize this and what a lot of them have done apart from zinc cafe they charge you so you go in, you can like sign up for a membership fee or whatever, um, and then you pay weekly or monthly for a membership with them. It's like kind of like renting office space, but it's a cafe. Not really renting office space because it's not yours, but you, you go in, you can use their Wi-Fi, you can get unlimited tea and coffee, you can order discount food rather than the normal price that regular people would get. And yeah, they've just come up with this whole business plan specifically targeting expats, which I think is brilliant. 
and also super annoying because anywhere else you can just go to a cafe and work. Zing Cafe was one of the free ones, I'd love it there, and their poke bowls are second to none, they're the best. Oh dear, I would love one right now. Side note, I think the best poke bowls in Bali are from Zing Cafe and Potato Head Beach Club. But yeah, I, I did enjoy myself in Bali as well as work. I did try and allow myself to have a healthy work-life balance. So maybe some days I keep my head down and crack on with some writing. And then other days I would go for a surf, have a nasty garang. Oh my god, do you know what? I would give anything right now to just spend the day having a morning surf at Batu Belong Beach for a few hours, get, hiring my board from Maddie, and then going to sit at Sandbar with a nasi goreng for breakfast and a coconut and watch other people surf. Oh, I really miss a nasi goreng, hey? But no, altogether, Bali just completely flew by. I was there for a couple months and I made so many friends while I was there trying to speak the language. I picked up a few things. At the time, Bali just felt like home to me and I don't even know how to put this feeling into words, but it was just this sense of euphoria, like I've been wanting to move away from England for God knows how long and I finally got to paradise and it was so, so, so much better than I expected. And the people there were great, and the food was amazing, and the weather was always nice, apart from the odd thunderstorm or two. It was just this sense of paradise, and I had made it, and I couldn't believe that I'd actually gone and done the thing that I'd been wanting to do for so long, and Bali just represents that for me, it encompasses this whole moving away for me. I'm so grateful for Bali, I love it. So when my visa for Bali was coming to an end and I didn't really want to renew it, I was ready to move on to the next thing, I didn't know what was in store for me next. Matt did say to me that I should come to Thailand with him. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to take a step back and just be by myself for a bit again. I'd already been to Thailand before. I didn't want to go to Thailand again and I wasn't about to change my plans for somebody else. I looked at the cheapest flight to the next place out of there. I think it was £80 for a one-way ticket from Bali to Vietnam. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going there. And then two weeks later, I was off. Vietnam was just incredible. Um, I listened to Stephen Bartlett's Diary of a CEO podcast and one of the episodes he interviewed Mo Gaudau, who is a happiness expert. He said one of the key points to happiness is to have low expectations. This way you're not expecting anything in particular and everything that does come is a bonus. When I went to Vietnam I had zero expectations, I didn't do too much research beforehand, I was just ready to go there and take everything as it came. I did not expect Vietnam to be so incredible, man. Like, there was something new to do every day, there was so much to do, I learnt how to ride a bike with confidence, I made so many friends, oh my god, and the food, the nature, everything. I started off in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, 
and did some stuff there. I think I was there for like three days or five days, something like that. Going to the Mekong River, going to the Coochie Tunnels, etc. And that was great. But the real fun began when I got to Munay and I was brushing my teeth in iHome Hostel, Munay. I met a girl, Elle, there while I was brushing my teeth. It was Elle, Maddie and Lizzie and they're all having a conversation about God knows what but they seemed interesting and so I joined in. Over breakfast we were talking about all the things we wanted to do and it became apparent that we all wanted to go to the sand dunes in Munay and neither of us had done it yet. So we decided to go there that day, we all went together, we rented out some quad bikes, we were there for, I don't know, it felt like an hour just riding around on these sand dunes. No joke, so I went out there with a guy at first, a local who worked for the company we hired the quad bikes from, and he was going so fast, I nearly lost my sandals, We were. I thought I was going to die, our tyre came off, our tyre popped, we were going round corners, not even corners, but drifting, like, oh god, I was terrified on that quad bike, <laughs> but in hindsight, it was so much fun, it was like Thought Park without any safety at all, um, and I thought, god, you know, this must be quite dangerous, I feel like we're going to tip over here, what if I land on my head, I thought, okay, well, I mean, I'm sure loads of people have done this before, it must be safe, right, and then next thing I see is my friend on her quad bike and her instructor riding past and they're both pointing at our tyre and we're like, what? So we pull over and our tyres come off the wheel. We're like, okay, maybe this isn't as safe as I initially thought. But it was so fun and what do they do? Someone came out with a different quad bike, we hopped on that and we carried on. And after that there was just adventure after adventure. We went to Delat and we met two guys called Jasper and Nico who we ended up spending the rest of Vietnam with. Um, we met a Liz who is now one of my closest friends. I spent New Year's with her. I spent summer with her in England. Travelling is just really all about the people you meet along the way and experiencing things together is what I believe anyway. The moment I really began to gain confidence on a bike was when everyone, all my friends, wanted to do the high van pass and at this point I was still quite nervous getting on a bike because of everything that happened in Bali to me. Um, Jasper and Nico were already biking up Vietnam so they weren't getting buses like we were. They had their own motorbikes and were travelling from place to place by themselves. Everyone wanted to do the high van pass which is a five hour bike journey from Hoi An to Hue and I didn't want to be the only one not to go and I thought you know what Sophie listen to your own advice you only regret the things that you don't do and you will regret not doing this just get on the bike and everything will be fine and so I did exactly that me and my friends we drove five hours from Hue to Hoi An Looking back, I think, how am I still here? Probably the most dangerous part was going along windy roads. Um, I think there were seven of us, so seven of us trying to catch up with each other. Undertaking and overtaking Arctic lorries. And to think, if I make one wrong move right now, I could just slip onto this lorry. You have to trust yourself. Travelling definitely makes you trust yourself more. Before I went to Vietnam, my friend Patrick from Bali told me about 
the Bunmies, and he was telling me about the time when he hitchhiked from south to north, I think it was Vietnam. He's like, you need to try a Bunmi. I'm like, okay, what is this? It's a baguette, pretty much. When the French colonised Vietnam, they introduced baguettes into their culture. It's pork with coriander, pickled carrot, cucumber, I think radish, chilli, all in a baguette. And oh my god, it's probably one of my favourite foods now. However, when I first got there, I tried a baguette in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, and I hated it. I didn't like it at all. I was like, what's all this fuss about? This is disgusting. But do you know what? I think the reason why I didn't like it is because I got it from a smelly street vendor. I was eating it around a market and I think there was fish there. And it just wasn't a nice environment, smell-wise, to be eating a bun me. So I didn't like them at first, but as I travelled further north, and I was like, oh, okay, trying different ones from different places. Like, oh, actually, I do like a bun me. And now they're my favourite thing. Oh, God, I'd love a bun me right now. I'm in Dice Art. There's nothing here. There's not even sushi. There's not even a Coles. Pho, as well, is a traditional Vietnamese food. It's spelled P-H-O with an accent on. Don't pronounce it pho because in Vietnamese that means prostitute. It's pronounced pho, like a fur coat. It's like a noodle soup pretty much. I liked pho, but it's nowhere near as good as my dad's cooking. Sorry, Vietnam. Vietnam has so much to offer, including its nature. If you've ever been there or seen pictures of Ninh Binh, Phong Nha, that district from central Vietnam all the way up to the north. My god, it's so beautiful. I've never seen so many shades of green before. One of the most memorable times there, uh, <laughs> me and Elle, we got the bus from one place to another and it dropped us off to our hostel at 5am I believe and normally reception is 24 hours so they just let you check into your room early and if not you pay for an extra night it's fine but when we got there there was not a single soul around to talk to or check in with check-in i think wasn't till 11 a.m and we got there at 5 a.m so we we're waiting there for hours and my gosh we were tired from a not so very comfortable bus journey i guess we just sit here for the next foreseeable future and so that's exactly what we did. We had nothing else we could do. We wanted a bit of a sleep. So there were some hammocks by a beautiful lake with lily pads and all sorts of nature and wildlife and greenery. So we just sat on the hammocks and was looking out at that, just soaking in the view, appreciating the beautiful scenery we were in. But that was short-lived when we realised we were being attacked by mosquitoes. And so we quickly decided to move away from the lake. We decided to lie by the pool instead on the sun lounges and that wasn't really much good either, especially when it started to rain. They had a cute dog there at the hostel and its bed was in sort of like a, a round cove with some comfy cushions and it wasn't a dog bed, but it, it was like a sofa in some shelter. But the dog was sleeping there and I thought, do you know what? That looks dry, that looks comfortable and I can lay down. So I went and cuddled up with the dog until whatever time check-in was. 
me and Elle were waiting around reception area for anyone to talk to, to say, look, can we get a bed now? Um, but our other friend, Eliz, thought, stuff this. She had a sleeping tablet on the bus and she really needed to find a bed. We had no idea where she went. She just disappeared. And later on, we found out she snuck into any old room and, and put, picked any old bed and decided that that would be hers for the night. Oh my God, that was so funny. I was actually so envious that she got a bed. Savvy her. There was lots of highlights in Vietnam. I did actually write my whole itinerary on my website, sophietangtravel.com, and you can have a look at that to see exactly what I did, where I stayed. Um, but what I will say, the absolute highlight of Vietnam for me was the Ha Giang Loop. Now, that was four days riding around the mountains in North Vietnam, just where the border of China is. And, oh my God, despite gaining confidence on the high van pass on motorbike, I was terrified riding round mountains where the path can be as wide as one metre at points, bearing in mind this is two-way traffic, and just to drop into the abyss, I was terrified, but I was with my friends, and I thought, you know what, Sophie, again, you have to trust yourself, you can do this, many other people have done the Hajang Loop in the past, and you're also able to do it, you've done the high van pass, you've proven to yourself that you can ride a bike, and it's not as scary as it needs to be, and so... We did a four-day trip around the mountains, navigating ourselves without any signal. We had a little paper map, actually, that had been drawn out for us. I think there was only a few roads, and now and again you'd get to a crossroad and you'd have to stop and look at the map and think, OK, do I go left or right? And the first day I was navigating the group. There was only, I think, six of us at this point. As the days went on, we accumulated more people. I think by the end, we had about 12 of us. Nico and Jasper decided to navigate, which was great. It was raining the entire time, too. We had this disgusting blue bin bag-looking waterproof coats, which were not actually waterproof, by the way, that the hostel had given us. We thought, OK, well, fingers crossed it doesn't rain the entire time. It rains the entire time. Actually, there was half an hour where the sun came out and we thought, oh, yay, this is what we've been waiting for. No raincoats, just a jumper to keep us warm. About half an hour later, it started to rain again. We're like, okay, pull over, raincoats out again. We didn't let the weather get us down. It was such an incredible time, just being free, being able to do whatever we wanted to do, just exploring around the mountains. I think maybe the best part as well was we'd spend a good few hours each day driving from A to B and maybe we'd get lost along the way too and, and then catch up with the group later. We all kind of knew where we were going as well um, but it's better to stay as a group. We'd race to get to, it wasn't even a hostel in, in the Hajang Loop. These these places were homestays we were staying at, but we would race to get there and, and have a shower because we were soaking wet through and get warm and cosy. And then in the evenings, the family would cook us a meal and we'd all have dinner together and sit round and 
we drink happy water, oh man, oh, we just do shots before dinner, and then we do more shots after dinner, and it's their homemade alcohol, my gosh, it's actually lethal, we'd sing, oh, hi, bye, yo, before taking a shot, I can't remember what it means, I remember, I think it might have been on the last day, on the Hajang Lip, or the second to last day anyway, I was riding with the group as per usual and the roads were incredibly slippy at this point. We were going downhill and I remember I nearly fell off my bike so I thought okay I'm going to take it slow. Everyone else was driving at a regular speed but I I wanted to be extra cautious so I was going a bit slower. Um, One of the guys in front of me he kept stopping and waiting for me to catch up but eventually he probably just got pissed off and decided fuck this I'm going and so I was riding by myself for a good hour in the rain trying to catch up with them but then thinking oh it's all right I've got it by myself it's fine I was by myself for an hour and then I don't think I knew where I was going a hundred percent I wasn't really sure yes I had the map up on my phone but I didn't even know if the map was taking me to the right place because I think Nico decided to change direction. I got to a crossroad, I was by myself and I thought, which way is it? And there was some locals at a restaurant nearby and I said to them, I was trying to ask them if they knew where my friends went and I was like, they look like me, we're all wearing blue bin bags. They had no idea what I was saying and I thought, this is brilliant. I'm by myself in the cold, wet rain, no idea where I am in some random mountain in Vietnam, and I don't know whether to go straight or left. And then one of the girls, Sarah, she came, I think I saw her in a blue bin bag, she came running past, like, hey, like, there you are, and um, she was like, oh, it's this way, and it was correct on my map, and then we caught up with a Liz, who thought she was behind everyone, but she was in front of, I think, four of us, and she was panicking so much. She was like, oh my god, I thought you guys left me. And I said, no, you guys left me, but it's cool, I don't mind. (laughs) I thought I knew where I was going. We got to the homestay, and I think they'd been there for a while already. They'd had their shower, cracked open a beer, and were just chilling for the evening. The Hajang Loop was definitely a highlight for me. We did consider cutting it short by a day because of the rain, but in hindsight, I'm so glad we didn't do that because the rain didn't really bother me too much and we're having such a great time as it was, even though it was wet the entire time. That was a great one. That that was a real highlight for me. After we finished the Hajang Loop, I was talking with my friend Elle, who is from Melbourne, and... She just mentioned about going to Melbourne and visiting her before she went to do her ski season in Falls Creek. It had been on my mind for a while, ever since I went to Australia the first time round, to go back and live there. And I thought, do you know what? Actually, I will come to Melbourne and I will stay with you and your family for a week. I booked a one-way flight to Melbourne from Cambodia because that was the next place I was going after Vietnam. So my plan was to go to Australia for a year and live there, which is what I'm doing now. But in the meantime, I first flew to Cambodia and it was kind of nice and refreshing, quite humbling being back by myself again, starting from fresh with no friends in the country, all by myself and seeing what would happen. 
I think Cambodia was definitely a much more chilled version of Vietnam, as I wasn't doing everything constantly, every day. I think I took life a bit slower while I was in Cambodia and kind of just absorbed everything, soaked everything up a bit more, appreciating each place for a bit longer while I was there. I started off in Phnom Penh, stayed there for a few days, met some people, had some fun, and then I decided I wanted to go to the islands, so I made my way down to Sihanoukville, and then got a boat from there to Koh Rong and Koh Rong Salong, the islands. And oh my, they are beautiful. The islands are just super chill, super relaxed. While I was on the boat there, I was just by myself. I think it was a stag do or something. Every wave the boat was kind of jumping over, they were screaming and oh my god, they were so annoying. I don't know if they were screaming because they were enjoying themselves or if they were screaming because they were scared. To be fair, the waves were pretty choppy and I thought we'd be fine, but these guys were out of control. The boat was making a couple of stops and to be honest, I didn't really know which stop was mine. So I kind of just followed my instincts, I had no signal to see whereabouts I was on the island. And I was going to ask the skipper which stop to get off at for the nest. But then before I had a chance to ask, I heard this other girl asking the same question. And then I spoke to her, I was like, oh, are you going to nest? Me too, let's walk there together. Um, this girl was Mac, who I ended up travelling the whole of Cambodia with and then flying to Singapore with afterwards. Mac's such an incredible person, such a bubbly personality, so kind, thoughtful, friendly. We had such a great time together on the island. The nest was fun. On Sunday, I had a Sunday roast, and it was the first Sunday roast I'd had since probably January. Bearing in mind this was now June. Having a roast dinner on the beach, looking out to the tropical island, that was, that was an experience in itself, hey? We had a little walk round, and we found this cute little cafe restaurant place that had the best hummus I've ever tasted in my life. We walked there, this part of the island, the sand was a bit more yellow, and I just thought, wow, this place is absolutely mesmerising. I love island life, but this particular island took me back a bit. There wasn't really many other people there, there wasn't any pollution, the sand was undeniably stunning. It kind of felt untouched in a way. We did a boat trip when we were in Koh Rong, and it cost us 10 US dollars. It took us out for the entire day. We went fishing, didn't catch anything. We were promised to go fishing and have a barbecue. There were 13 of us on the boat, including the skipper. Neither of us caught anything. I think, I think the guy who was running the tour must have caught three tiny fish. That's literally all we ate for the barbecue. 13 of us shared three tiny little fish with bones in. Which was super annoying because I was saving myself for this barbecue. Because I thought, oh yeah, barbecue on a boat, that sounds banging. I was so hungry after that. It was kind of disappointing really, but do you know what? It was all part of the fun. It took us round to a different part of the island just to explore a different beach, taking in the views. I love just being surrounded by nature. It gives me so much serotonin, not necessarily doing anything in particular, but just being around the palm trees and feeling the sand in between my toes. 
The boat also took us to some different snorkeling sites and I love snorkeling. If only I had some fins I'd be able to dive a bit deeper and explore the ocean a bit more. Is anyone scared of the sea? I understand why people would be scared of the deep blue sea, you don't really know what's lurking around but I find it so fun just being in the ocean, being able to just swim anywhere you want and the only limit being how long you can hold your breath for. As the sun set, everyone was laughing, everyone was enjoying themselves and having a good time, splashing around. I think there were a few jellyfish in the ocean too, which probably doesn't help anyone with a fear of the sea. Sorry. <laughs> the sun set, it was dark, it was pitch black, and we were just waiting for the plankton at this point. Where the boat took us, there was glow-in-the-dark plankton, and all you had to do was kind of swish your arms around in the water and it would light them up. You could see them from the boat if you were looking down to other people that were swish swilling around the water. But it was so much better being in the sea with your goggles on and seeing the plankton underwater and swimming around and watching them light up. I think I did speak about this in my first episode of Destination Happiness. And if you know the song Bunny by Tourist, have a listen to that after you finish this episode. Close your eyes and imagine you're on a boat in the pitch black with glow-in-the-dark plankton around you. That was a euphoric moment in itself. That's probably one of my highlights of Korong. After a few days on Korong, we got a boat over to Korong Salom. It's a bit quieter than Korong, there's not the nest hostel, there's not all the parties and games that they have at the nest or roast dinners. But there was this one particular hike we did. It wasn't meant to be two hours, but it took us two hours to get to this lighthouse. We walked there, I don't know why we decided to walk there at I think one o'clock in the afternoon where the sun's at its hottest. We had two bottles of water which disappeared within half an hour, an hour. My gosh, I don't think I've ever sweated so much on a hike. I look back and I've got photos and videos for me and I am dripping wet in sweat. We eventually got to this lighthouse and no word of a lie, it was the biggest disappointment looking at it. It looked like a satellite tower. Well, actually, it, it literally was a satellite tower. One big grey pole with a little bit at the top. And we thought, have we really just hiked our way for two hours for this? And Holly said, I should have done my research before. I didn't, didn't want to come all this way for this. What a waste of time. And there was this one local guy just sat on a chair at the bottom. I think he said, $2 to go to the top. We thought, oh, well, we're here now, why not? So we paid and went inside and there were all these ladders going up. I think there must have been at least seven stories. Not really any safety there. You could fall and, and just fall all the way to the bottom. It was actually quite crazy. Anyone with a fear of heights probably wouldn't be for them. At first it was fine, just climbing up these ladders. There were even holes in the ground, so you have to be careful where you stepped, otherwise one wrong step and you just fall through the hole to the next level again. After a few levels, I'm like, right guys, this is actually kind of terrifying, we're so high up right now, I'm getting a bit nauseous. But I didn't want to quit and I made my way to the top. Oh my god, I was shaking. <laughs> but then when I stood up and I looked out at the view, 
oh, we just hiked such a long way and all you could see was jungle and forest and sea and sand and all the islands going across into the distance. I think we looked on our map and worked it out and we're like, oh, okay, over there, that's where we've just hiked two hours from. We were up there for a little while, soaking it in. I think I got a nice sweaty picture too, which was ravishing. <laughs> I did an Instagram live too while I got to the top of the tower. So if you scroll back on my um, reels, you'll see a live stream that I did. When we decided we'd had enough, we climbed our way back down to the bottom of the lighthouse and we thought, okay, that actually was worth it. That was such an incredible hike. I'm glad we got to climb the lighthouse. We were thinking, we've run out of water now, we've got a two hour hike back, we're really tired, is there another way we can get back without having to do a two hour hike? We passed some people who were on quad bikes and thought, okay, where can we hire some quad bikes from? But there wasn't really anywhere we could hire it from, so we started walking back. We passed this house who was selling water and we decided to buy some more from them as we already bought from them on the way up and they had a really cute dog outside. They had a truck too and we were like, oh, we'll pay you to take us back to the beach, please. And they said they were going that way anyway, so we were like, result, okay. So we paid them 10 US dollars, bless them, such sweethearts, and hopped on the back of their truck and they drove us to the beach. But I think because their family was on there too, plus three of us, the truck was really heavy. And I think that's probably the reason why it was so slow. We did struggle a bit getting over some bumps and hills. He took us the majority of the way. The truck started overheating, so he took my water that I just bought from him and poured it all over the engine or into the coolant, I don't know, whatever. Which really pissed me off because I was like, I'm going to need to drink that. We carried on and made our way closer and closer to the beach and then he kind of broke down again by some sand. We all got out and we were pushing the truck over the sands to get to the beach where he normally goes anyway. We managed to push it out the sands, but he thought, you know what, guys, like, I've taken you as far as I can, like, this is, this is as far as I can take you. And we were really grateful at the fact that he managed to get us this far. I think it cut about an hour out of our journey, at least. We thanked him and we paid him the 10 US dollars that we agreed. And then we walked another hour back to the place we were staying. I think I remember the first thing I did when I got back was strip, get into my bikini and run straight into the sea because my gosh, we were so hot and sweaty and all I wanted was to cool down and have a big gulp of water. That was a memorable day and I didn't spend too much on that day at all. 10 US dollars for the trip back, couple dollars for some water. Oh yeah, another funny thing actually, I didn't know this about Cambodia until I got there. So they have their own currency which is Cambodian reels, but they also use US dollars because the reels are kind of losing its value. And I didn't know this until I got there. I think I needed to pay $30 for my visa, so I got some money out and gave it to them and I was kind of confused as to why they wanted dollars, but whatever, I exchanged it and gave it to them. And then the remaining money I had left over, I changed it into real. 
later on when I was buying my dinner, this was still on the first night of Cambodia, I was looking at the menu and I was like, why is everything in dollars? It's like four dollars for rice, X dollars for this. Why have I just got some reels out? Why aren't they using their own currency? And they do still use reels, but they prefer using US dollars. The most confusing part is if you pay in one currency, they can give you your change back, mixed currency, and you're stood there like, hmm, hang on a minute. I've given you $20 and you've given me $10 and 4,000 real. What's this? <laughs> and it did take me a little while to work out the exchange and making sure I wasn't ripped off. There was one or two times where I was stood there working out the change. I was like, you've shortchanged me. And I'm like, oh, sorry. They probably did know they were just trying it on because, you know, try and take advantage of the tourists, right? But you've got to be savvy about these things. It wasn't that much money at all, but whatever. After we finished our time in the islands, Mac and I got the bus over to Kampot. Now, the bus journey wasn't so bad, but the roads was what made it absolute chaos. I've never seen so many potholes in my life. If you think the UK's bad, then go to Kampot. I'm so lucky that at this point I didn't have food poisoning because the rose would have killed me off. I'd arranged to meet back up with my friend Rob and Elle and Harry. I saw Rob and I was like, oh, so, so Rob's actually one of the guys that I did the Hajang loop with who we met in Vietnam. It was so lovely seeing him again and we ended up spending the next week in Kampot together. There was a couple of days where we'd all hire our bikes and we'd go riding out into the national parks. We'd ride up the mountains again, we'd go on adventures, go to dirt tracks and go on different trails and waterfalls, all as a group. And I'd be navigating again because I was the one navigating us in the Hajang loop, so they all trusted me, which was really nice. We just had a bit of a slow, relaxing time while we were in Kampot. On one of the last days, we went to this cafe. I went there and I had a curry and a cheesecake. It's funny because when I initially went travelling, as I said before, I intended on going pescatarian or vegetarian because I didn't want to get food poisoning. The funny thing is, if I did do that, I would have got food poisoning anyway because the cheesecake is pescatarian. So I'm glad that... I didn't end up missing out on all this delicious food. So I had a bit of a sore stomach at first and I didn't really think too much of it because it's pretty normal when you're in Asia. But then it got worse. In the evening, I just thought, you know, when you get a fever, you're a bit sweaty and you're like, oh, actually, I'm, I'm actually coming down with something. Um, I think I had an early night. And in the morning, I, I think I woke up and I wanted to be sick. So I went to the toilet and... No joke, I was leaning over the sink and everything just started to fade. Everything went grey and I was focusing on the toilet roll that was sat on the sink on the side and it started to disappear until everything in the room was just grey and I could not see a single thing and I was panicking. I've just gone blind, I can't see anything. And I was panicking, I was like, how long is this going to last for? You know when you stand up too quickly sometimes and you just lose your vision? It was like that for me for, it felt like maybe three minutes, maybe a bit shorter than that, but it felt like a long time. And the worst part of it was, because I had not been feeling well previously either, my ears were kind of bunged up and I couldn't hear properly too. I remember feeling my way back to the bed 
and the only way I could tell where I was is because my microfiber towel was hanging over the bed and I could feel it so I knew where I was stood. I sat down and I said to Rob, I was feeling around for him because I didn't know where he was, I said, Rob, I can't see anything. And he was like, what do you mean? And apparently, so he told me I was just staring blankly at him but I had no idea he was in front of me and I was panicking. I said, Rob, I can't see, I can't see. He was trying to comfort me for a bit while I was just sat there like, what the hell is going on? And eventually things started to come back. Things started to fade back into my vision, but in black and red scale, as if everything was bloody. Then it came back to normal after a good few minutes, but I was like, oh my God, that's the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. So I sat back down in bed, curled up into a ball and went to sleep. That was actually the day I was meant to check out. I ended up checking out late because there was no way I was able to get up that morning. We had a good few days living the slow life in Campot and after muddy trails, motorbike journeys again and having lots of fun all as a group, it was time to go on to the next adventure to see them reap. So we said our goodbyes and Mac and I got a 15 hour bus journey to see him rape. Now bearing in mind my food poisoning still hadn't rectified itself, I was still feeling shit. We were on this bus for 15 hours and it was a weird one, so it was like double, double bed bunk beds kind of thing, so we were literally on the floor in this bunk bed, curled up, it was like a little hole that you had to crawl into and lie down. We stopped once or twice I think over the whole journey and the entire time I was thinking, oh, just please don't shit yourself, Sophie. <laughs> it was bad, it was really bad. But I think I slept the entire way and luckily nothing happened. Seeing Rick was fun, obviously you've got one of the seven wonders of the world there, which is Anchor Wat. I still have my bracelet, which I was given for good luck. Actually, every piece of jewellery I own has a story behind it, not like a monetary value, but more of a sentimental value to me. All my rings, all my bracelets and my necklaces and my earrings, that's actually really sweet. But yeah, CM Rick was fun. I bumped into a couple of my school friends there actually, George and Toby. I went downstairs and I was like, Toby? And he just started laughing and he got up and was like, Sophie, what are you doing here? Isn't it crazy how you just bump into someone from your childhood in a random hostel in Cambodia? I think it's great, actually. What a small world we live in. All four of us, me, Mac, Toby and George, we did Angkor Wat together, we did all the temples and we had fun. Shortly afterwards, after a few days, Mac and I got the same flight to Singapore. Mac was meant to be going to Disneyland, actually, and that got cancelled, so she ended up taking about 20 flights to get to France, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> I had a connecting flight in Singapore to get to Melbourne, and that was where my Australia journey began. It was so nice seeing Elle again. She picked me up from the airport at Tullamarine and took me back to hers. We had lots to catch up on and it was so nice seeing her again and telling her about Cambodia, what I'd been up to. But there was also kind of a culture shock when I got to Australia. Obviously I'd been there before, but after spending so many months in Southeast Asia and going back to a Western country, it kind of made me a bit sad. 
the culture's different, the people's different, the prices of things are different, you kind of feel this expectation to dress in a certain way. It's not as carefree as Southeast Asia, I don't think, and yeah, I really miss the food too. I remember we went for breakfast. I was so jet-lagged and only just getting over my food poisoning at this point. Um, but we went for breakfast at this cafe in Melbourne and it was $26. Now that's not actually too much money, but after spending months in Southeast Asia where you'd pay $1 for a meal, I was like, wow, how am I going to afford Australia? My money's gonna get eaten up so quickly. It was also incredibly cold. Now, obviously when I left the UK, I didn't plan any of this. I only planned two nights accommodation in Bali. So I didn't have any jumpers or warm clothes or anything like that for the winter because when I got to Australia, it was winter time and Melbourne in particular is quite cold. I think it was around eight degrees Celsius at this point. And all I had was shorts and t-shirts. I had to borrow a jumper from Elle. I had to borrow jeans from her and I was like, Oh, I kind of miss Asia. But then I grew used to it again and kind of got used to being in Australia. I didn't miss Asia as much. My initial intention was to go and live in Gold Coast and work in a cafe there or something and see where the wind took me. But I went to Gold Coast and I stayed there for a bit, but I decided I didn't want to live there. I did some research and I found that there was a farm in Bundaberg, so the plan was to go and work there. Now, Brisbane was between Gold Coast and Bundaberg, so I decided to go up and stay in Brisbane for one night and then carry on the journey the next day before getting to Bundaberg. This is weird actually because thinking back, I only intended on staying in Brisbane one night and I ended up living there for seven months and... I had a whole life in Brisbane, friends, gym, work, etc. And it all could have been missed if I'd decided not to stay. What a wonderful world. Yeah, the next morning I just had a gut feeling that I shouldn't go to Bundaberg. Something was telling me not to go. So I called my mum and I asked her, what do you think I should do? This is the situation I'm in. And my mum's always good at giving advice. She normally knows what to do before I know what to do. She's, she knows me more than I know myself. And she said, Sophie, I think you should stay in Brisbane. So that's exactly what I did. I extended my stay in the hostel for an extra two or three nights with Dougie. Oh, what a great guy. He was like, oh, why don't you come and have a drink with us later? I was like, okay. I met Beth, who had been to Australia too, so we had that in common. And Beth was my first friend in Brisbane. My money was getting eaten up so quickly while I was there. I ended up working at the hostel for free accommodation. I also got a job in a bar in Fortitude Valley, which I enjoyed. I had another job working in sales marketing, where I met some of my other friends too. I actually can't believe how it all panned out. Say I didn't get the job in the bar, I wouldn't have met XYZ people. If I didn't get the job in sales marketing, I wouldn't met these people. If I didn't decide to stay at Nomads in Brisbane and speak to the French guys on the roof the night before I decided to stay, I might have gone to Bundaberg. There's so many alternative realities to your life. I just find that crazy. Living in Brisbane was unexpected, but it was great. 
it kind of reminded me of a mini London, how it's the city, you've got the river running through it with all the skyscrapers, you've got the Ferris wheel. I'd never really lived in a city before. When I was living in England, it was in a small town by the beach. Um, when I was living in Bali, that was beach life too. I've always been used to the beach. The one thing actually that I think Brisbane lacks is a beach. Yes, they do have South Bank, which is an artificial beach by the river, but it's definitely not the same. You can't just go there and have a surf, you know? But I still appreciate it. Probably one of my favorite things about Brisbane too is how easily accessible sushi is. There's this place called Sushi Hub, and no joke, I think I'd go there every day. Sushi's quite expensive in the UK, I think. But you can get sushi rolls in Australia for like $4 for a roll. I loved everyone I met in Brisbane and there's definitely a lot of diversity in the city. Lots of nights out would introduce me to new people. Um, one of my friends, Karina, who is the DJ at the bar I worked at, we got along really well. Shout out to Czech. She introduced me to our other friend April, who is such a sweetheart, a beautiful soul. I worked with some incredible people at the bar who helped me learn Spanish because do you remember earlier I said I was planning on traveling South America instead of going to Asia? Well, I did start learning Spanish at that point in order to go to South America. Um, but I stopped learning while I was in Asia and then these guys helped me learn again. Shout out to Jeronimo, Danny and everyone else I worked with at Dirty Sultan in the Valley. Love you all. Hostel life was so fun and I wouldn't change it for the world. Yes, it does have a stigma that it's not as nice, obviously, as having your own place, but... I would rather be in a fun environment, surrounded by great people, in a great location, especially if I don't have to pay for accommodation, than be in an apartment where there's no social life, no one to talk to, and whenever I would go in, no matter what time of the night or morning it was, there'd always be someone there I knew to have a chat with. I did actually have another job working in a, another backpacker's bar. Have you ever heard of Dunder? There was this one particular night where I don't think I finished until about 5am closing the bar and I went up and I was, was quite hungry, I think I had some leftover sushi actually. I went to the kitchen to go and eat it and my friend Jack and Mariano were in there having their breakfast ready to go to work and I was like, don't tell me you're awake to go to work, I'm just finishing work. <laughs> that was fun. Oh, I, I actually do really miss hostel life. I think one of the best parts about Brisbane, just settling down for a bit and staying in one place, having a bit of a routine, having my comfort zone again, going to the gym, which I love doing, getting a job, just settling down, that was nice and I was there for, good, for a good seven months. I didn't leave Brisbane until about six weeks ago now, so at the end of January, and to be honest it was kind of emotional leaving there even more emotional than it was leaving Bali because I'd made so many friends, I'd settled down, I'd started a new life, I was living there for a while. All good things kind of have to come to an end, really. So that was emotional for me, saying goodbye to everyone and just leaving 
the happiness that I had created around me. Now I'm doing my 88 days in a little town called Dysart. When I first got here, I was kind of like, oh, what am I doing here? There's no one around, there's no one to talk to, there's nothing to do. I don't even have a car to drive to the beach on my days off, which is like a three hour drive anyway. Um, there's not even a Coles or a Woolies here, so I can't do my food shop. But now I've kind of got used to it and I'm learning to appreciate and live in the moment more. There are great things about dice art that Brisbane doesn't have, like some peace and quiet and interesting characters, let's say. Every night when I finish work, I walk home and there's no light pollution here, so the stars are so visible and crystal clear you can almost see the Milky Way, and I always try and get a picture of it, but nothing's ever as good as looking at it, looking at it with your own eyes. My visa for Australia ends in June, and at this moment I'm trying to decide what to do. I'm thinking, do I move back to Bali? Do I go to Hong Kong? Do I travel to South America? Do I go to Philippines or Thailand? Do I go to Japan? I'm thinking all these things and focusing on what to do in the future. And it's both an incredible and a terrifying situation to be in. Imagine you were dropped into the middle of the ocean and you had no idea which way to swim. It's like the opposite of claustrophobia and that's the situation I'm in now. It's like, oh, okay, what do I do? But it's kind of a nice problem to have. Over the next year, I'm just going to be focusing on work more, that is my goal, and I'm thinking about maybe living in Australia long term. I can see myself living in Sydney, perhaps. Sydney has the city, it has the beach, but I'm not entirely sure what I'll be doing. To be honest, I'm just grateful for the past year I've had, and I'm excited to see what the next year holds. I'm grateful for the freedom I have, I'm grateful for my health, I'm grateful for the friends I've met along the way and the memories I've made. This past year has been the most incredible one of my life and now I just need to work out how to top it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed recounting all the memories as much as I have, looking back at my camera roll and scrolling through and remembering different things I did and even just reading back at random pages on my journal. I love doing that and I love remembering all the things I've done. In the next episode, I'm going to be talking about the side of travelling that no one really mentions, the bad as well as the good. So you can expect to listen to that one on Wednesday in a couple of weeks' time. I'm now going to be doing episodes every second Wednesday, so there's a bit more of a schedule, so you know exactly when the next episode's coming out. If you enjoyed listening to this, please give it a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you listen to it on, as it helps boost the podcast so that more people can hear about my stories and be inspired about travelling. Thank you, and I will see you in the next episode.